Romans have been enjoying wine for 8,000 years or more, and there's never been entry exams, literacy tests, diplomas, or membership fees. You can go as far or deep as you want, or just take it all in and find your happy place. That being said, we like to spend our week looking for things that we can share with you in this space and time. We'll give you food for thought ideas for adventures, and most weeks, tips, pointers, and insights that you can use the minute the program ends. Wine has always united us. It still does. And we've never needed that more. So climb aboard. There is no time like the present to get your adventure started. So here's your host, the doctor of deliciousness, the chairman of the Bordeaux, the top gun of wine fun, David Wilson. So, you know, it's amazing to me that after 15 years of doing this show, and by the way, we are on episode number 732, that there are still subjects that I haven't gotten to. I remember when I told my father that I was going to be doing this show, he said, hey, that's great, son. What are you going to do after the first week? Meaning that all there is to talk about where wine is concerned is about a week's worth of information. (laughs) But there is a subject that is surprising to me that we've never gotten to because it is really about a particular city in the world that may very well be the number one foodie destination, the foodie capital of the world. World, and yet we rarely even mention it. And in fact, in the U.S., you don't see a lot written about it. But I need to write that wrong today because it is time to talk about London. It is time to talk about British food and also what they're drinking there and a number of other topics that we're going to cover today with a very interesting fellow that I got to know just last year. Actually, it was the beginning of this year now that I think about it. And we became fast friends because he is all things to foodies and wine lovers. His name is Valerio Cassani. And Valerio has built one heck of a resume working for several years in London. He's from Italy. And, you know, he's not alone because I've met a number of aspiring chefs and people who want to work in the culinary and wine world who have decided that London is the single best place to go and build your future. But I just love Valerio. We've had some amazing conversations about food, and I just had to have him on the show. Valerio, welcome to Grape Encounters. I'm glad we could finally do this. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. So right now, just describe for us where you are and what the food scene is around you there, because I can't think of another city that has a more diverse selection of food than London. Do I have this right? Yes, it is. Now, as you may know, London has always been one of the capital of the world. So here you can find international people going up and down. It's normal that the food follow this to meet all the palate that they are around. So yeah, especially now we are experiencing a lot of fusions. The oldest restaurant, the oldest British restaurant, they are stick on their British menu made with pies, really nice cut of beef, and all the products that come from the country, basically. But obviously, you have everything you want to find. Everything 
it comes through your mind speaking about food, you can find a place that in London does it. The most complicated, extravagant fusion. And also now uh, is few years, also the insects are coming in the market. So there are few restaurants that start to serve little cricket. No, no, I don't want to hear and this. That's a thing there now? Yes, it is. It's not really new. It was already before the pandemic event. So three, four years. So during the pandemic, it was a especially big because people were stuck at home and they see bugs crawling around on the rug <laughs> and they decide to grab might, them and figure out ways to stuff. cook them up. No, yes. I don't know why it is that it makes me cringe so much to eat things that I've never had before. And I don't know why, because when you think about the idea of slaughtering an animal, in fact, doing all kinds of terrible things to that animal to bring it to market, and yet it's so easy for us Westerners to just gobble it right up. When you start talking about other things that we've never had, insects for sure. And the other thing that's starting to get a lot of traction are not just meat substitutes, but now the laboratory grown meats that are about to hit the market in a really big way. Why is it, Valerio, that I have no trouble eating a lamb that's been butchered, but I cringe at the idea of eating something that is literally a laboratory-grown meat in a tank where it's 100% humane. What do you think about that? I think it's a cultural thing, first of all. And as I say, sometimes we are old school. Sometimes you don't want to go too much over what is your mind. But for me, actually, the lab meat grow is, is a topic I didn't follow much. Obviously, I have a few articles, but I didn't go through much because that thing scares me as well. It scares you. Why does it scare you, though? Because it's something I didn't think through properly, maybe. So it's something very new. I rather <laughs> prefer worms to lab grow meat. <laughs> I do like meat, but I'm still following the concept of one of the most clever chefs I work with, actually work for, because we had only a few shifts together. So the meat is important, but it doesn't have to be the base of your diet. It's better to have it a few days a week. Yeah. Fishes, a few days a week, you have vegetables. It's also something healthy, I think. What's really interesting is I was looking at some statistics in America literally just about three days ago. And it was the latest research on the amount of meat consumption that's going on. And Americans are now consuming more meat than ever before. And it's by a significant number. They still prefer poultry, chicken to any other meats, but beef and pork are closely behind. And it looks like that's going to be the trend almost indefinitely. I'm very curious to see if the idea of lab-grown meat will resonate with people who stopped eating meat, not because they don't like meat, but because they have a moral objection to how we get our food. So it's going to be really interesting. What's it like in London as far as the consumption of meats? Is that still number one on the list? The meat, yes. But we are speaking about the ancient way to grow to breed meat. We had the lab one, I didn't hear anything. And I think now the experimentation has been FDA approved in the uh, US at the moment. I don't know is the situation in 
the UK and the Euro. It's definitely coming. And that means that you sommeliers will now have something else to think about when you're making pairing recommendations. Valerio, have you done any pairings with insects? Have you got a chance to do that? At the moment, I have the chance to work with them. I also, with that product. But again, I think that will go more for trendy fashion glam restaurants. So it might be that the first pairing will be done with some cocktails more than uh, with the wines. (laughs) The reason why is because I need a couple of stiff drinks before I'm going to eat a cricket. I was at a food-oriented consumer event a few years back, and this person that I knew came up to me and handed me something. And she said, oh, you've got to try this. This is so delicious. It was like candy, kind of like a brittle sort of Mm -hmm. thing. And I took a bite of it and I go, yeah, that's really good. And she says, you know what, David, it's made from crickets. And of (laughs) course, I immediately went into gag reflex for sure. But I have to be honest, it tasted good. And anybody that lives in a place where you can hear the crickets, the cicadas, making an enormous amount of noise at night, they know, they should know, there's a lot of food out there that we're not eating, right? Oh, wow. It's crazy. All right. We're going to take a break for a moment. We are talking to Valerio Cassani. He is a very knowledgeable source where food and wine is concerned, has worked with a, a broad array of restaurants. He's got an outstanding resume. And I just like the way he thinks and his perspective on food. But he also has been immersed in the London food scene for a long time, which is why I wanted to get him on the show and open up that door and take a look inside because we Americans probably think very little about it for the most part. When it's uh, a food topic, we think about Italy and France and some other places, but London, really? Shepherd's pie? How exciting could that be? All right, we'll be back right after this. For the past year and a half, I've been surrounded by awesome Italian wines. But if you want to experience Italy's finest, you don't even have to leave your neighborhood, thanks to Total Wine & More. Just arriving straight from Tuscany, they've got the new St. Giorgio wines from the remarkable Castellani family. For 120 years, the Castellanis have been dedicated to the craft of traditional Italian winemaking, producing top-quality wines at incredible values, like the Vino Nobile with a 96-point rating. It does not disappoint. And with bottles starting at just $9.99 and more varietals with near-perfect scores, we can all enjoy Italy's best for much less. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. And drink responsibly. B21. The only thing that Mendocino County winemaker Greg Graziano can't tell you about wine is how many different choices he makes. It's somewhere between dozens and cowabunga. Artisans like Greg don't count, they create. Did Da Vinci or Michelangelo take inventory? Let's just say that Italians like Greg can easily get carried away, especially when it comes to food and wine. Great wine is in Greg's DNA. His immigrant grandparents started making Mendocino wines in the early 20s, and despite being the head honcho of the much-beloved Graziano family of wines, Greg is just a humble, lovable guy. When you play in the dirt all day, you can't help but be down to earth. Ask your wine cellar for Graziano wines, or just visit grazianofamilyofwines.com. 
they've got five different brands. Why? Well, because Italians tend to have big families. Life is just more fun with a Graziano at your table. At MM Organics, we're surrounded by health nuts. That's because we're obsessed with lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, and the risk of cancer. We want to make weight loss easier and help you strengthen everything from your heart to your teeth, nails, and hair. Full disclosure, those health nuts are actually dry-farmed heirloom certified organic raw walnuts. Rich with essential vitamins and nutrients, they're vastly superior to other nuts. Imagine, walnuts can actually lower stress and boost your brain power. No wonder MM Organics customers are so darn smart. MMOrganics.com is where you'll find our uniquely irresistible raw walnuts, walnut butter, oil and flour, sprouted flavored walnuts, and decadent fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, which pair beautifully with our legendary two horse port style wine. MMOrganics.com, eating any other nuts is just plain nuts. People are traveling to Europe in numbers that we haven't seen in literally decades. It is all a result, I think, of being locked up for a couple of years and deciding that they're just going to cut loose. And a lot of people make their travel decisions because of what lies at the end of their journey where food is concerned. And we think a lot about the traditional, well-known food destinations, but really what probably should be number one on the list is something Americans don't talk all that much about, and that is the London food scene. Valerio Cassani is a very skilled sommelier, certified by WSET, which is not an easy thing to do. And Valerio, you most recently were working in a Japanese restaurant. First question is, how popular is Japanese in London? And then secondly, are the Brits drinking beer with Japanese food or does wine get an opportunity to be on that table? The British they mostly drink wine or obviously sakis. And what they had to say is the Japanese like the beer with the, the sushi. Yeah. Japanese wants the, their beer, their Sapporo with the sushis. Yes. But you're saying that then when you go into a Japanese restaurant in London, the Japanese will be drinking beer, but the Brits will be drinking more yes. wine than anything else? Yes, more wine than anything else. So talk to us a little bit about... First of all, how big is the sushi scene there? And I should say or ask while we're at it, the dim sum scene is really quite big in London as well, right? A Asian foods in general, what yes. percentage of the market do you think that they have there? I do work in a traditional Japanese that is a bit more particular, but obviously around nowadays you can find plenty of places that also to go, they do sushi, sashimi, as you said, dim sum, gyoza, and all these food that come from Japan and from that area of the world. Because it's very trendy, easy to eat. Everything is portioned, so it's easy also to eat on the go. Also, yeah. supermarkets are now, they now have a little section where they sell pre-made rolls. There is a massive Sainsbury close to my place where they make on the spot sushi to go. So yes, nowadays, especially the cold section of the Japanese kitchen is very popular. 
Plus, we are also experiencing a massive wave of fusion. There is, there are Mexican-Japanese fusion, Italian. I heard also of an Italian uh, and Japanese fusion. Okay, well, wait a second. So what does that look like? Mexican-Japanese fusion. Can you describe a dish or two? Is a ceviche roll, for example. Okay. Is everything combined? That at the moment, again, I'm more specialized on the traditional because I do like fusion for me, but I prefer the to sell the traditional one. So let me ask you this question because you are Italian, okay? And one thing is sure, and this is not true necessarily in the larger cities in Italy, but Italians can be very close-minded when it comes to food. And they don't like at least... Uh, most of the friends that I've made here in Italy are a little adverse and sometimes a lot adverse to monkeying around with recipes that have been part of the culture for a, a really long time. And then you find yourself in London pursuing your culinary and wine dreams. It's a 180, is it not? Yes. The thing is that for what they can analyze, most people that come from a city, they are a bit more open to try different things, to explore the various cuisines that you can find. From a rural point of view, yes, they are really stick on their own food. And for them, it's a blasphemy or to eat something. Yeah. So, yes, I think it's basically a cultural, uh, not even issue, cultural thing. Because it's not easy. Do you find yourself torn at times or do you welcome fusion with open arms? I do welcome fusion with open arms arms. Obviously, doing this job, I, I like also to try different things, even if there's something that I completely dislike, like it could, have, it could have been the eel. I had eel in my menu, so I had to try it because I needed to be able to describe because being on a fine dining area is not only that you give them the food, look, this is eel, uh, there are few potatoes. You need to be able to describe what the guests will have in their mouth. So obviously I went through tasting that I didn't really like, but I had to do it. And sometimes I changed also my mind, especially for the Japanese and Asian kitchen. I had to really change all my thoughts about it. So let's talk about pairing for a second. And we can talk about traditional Japanese food here as far as this conversation is concerned. When you walk into a Japanese restaurant, you sit down. The thing is, you may order several different dishes, right? And they can be as different as night and day. The food itself presents challenges as far as wine pairing, but then the selection, I think, makes it even more complicated. What's your advice to somebody who wants to enjoy wine in a sushi restaurant? Or I should really say Japanese restaurant. The thing is that obviously... You will have different categories of fishes. You will have different. And we always go from the mildest to the strongest. So let's say that if you have a white fish, a pinot gris, a pinot grigio, a pinot gris, is perfect. But once you reach the salmon, it is a really fatty fish because it's a fat fish. In, in that case, you will lose and it would be better to move to a... Um, Macone or, or a bit of something with a bit of oak inside that can help you. 
obviously you will finish with also with a uni, the sea urchin. So a lot of saltiness and there the ability of the sommelier is also to move with different wines and be ready to tackle the fish. So yes, there's a nice variety of wine that you can uh, enjoy with your 12, 15 pieces of sushi. I will keep on the white and rosé side, obviously, because for the red, we will go for something a bit too strong to hold the the flavor of a fish. Does anybody order red wine in a sushi restaurant or is that just, they do? Yes. Speaking about Japanese cuisine, I also have warm dishes. They don't have to go only for raw fish, so... In that case, obviously, there's also the palate of the guest. So you can suggest as much as you want, but you need to match also the palate of the guest. And having a very international clientele, I can tell you that whenever you have somebody that comes from Spain, they will go for a Rioja, they will go for a Tempranillo, they will go Max for a Malbec from Argentina or South America. So whenever they ask me for something, I always ask, which is your taste? Yeah. That's the first question that I can start to eliminate a few things. Because having a 800 bin wine list, you understand that they have, I have many options and they have to start to get rid of few to be fast. Really? You had a wine list of 800 wines in a Japanese restaurant? At the moment, yes. Wow. That's amazing. That really is amazing. I mean... There are very few restaurants on the planet that have that many wines on their wine list, let alone Asian cuisines. Oh, that's fantastic. All right. We are talking to Valerio Cassani. He is a native of Italy, but some time ago, just following his passion for food, decided to relocate to the London food scene, which is what he's been doing. He has experience with a lot of different things there, understands what's going on in that very complicated food market as well as any Anybody, and we'll bring him back in just a second, but we've got to take a break. So stay with me and uh, we'll see you in just a second, right after this. Live the life you imagine. No words better express the key to a fulfilling and joyful existence. But nothing prevents us from realizing our dreams more than the fear of red tape. That's why millions of Americans of Italian descent never take even the first step down the pathway to Italian citizenship. If these words ring true for you, then it's time to discover ICA, Italian Citizenship Assistance. ICA's team of Italian citizenship experts will obtain all necessary documents and make easy work of the red tape that stands between you and an Italian passport. You could soon be enjoying the many privileges of citizenship, like high-quality health care, low-cost education, and the ability to live and work in Italy and every other EU country. You can do this quickly, economically, painlessly. Learn how now and confirm your eligibility at italiancitizenshipassistance.com. Your passport to your Italian passport. At Bardog, we believe that every dog deserves a life of unconditional love. That's why we've teamed up with Petfinder Foundation to establish the Bardog Operations Grant. Money from this grant goes to rescue shelters across North America and helps save animals awaiting their forever homes. Visit bardogwine.com to find a bottle near you and help Bardog give back. Bardog. Wine for humans. Love for dogs. And we're back with Grave Encounters, but before we dive back into today's topic, I have a huge announcement for you because on August 19th, 
we're going to be joined by none other than the highly acclaimed food and wine writer, Natalie McLean. Believe me, it just doesn't get any better. Natalie's just released book, Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation, and Drinking Too Much, is a must-read. Her previous books, Red, White, and Drunk All Over, A Wine-Soaked Journey from Grape to Glass, and Unquenchable, A Tipsy Quest for the World's Best Bargain Wines, were both selected as Amazon's Best Books of the Year. Natalie's newest memoir has already become a national bestseller, and it's been compared to Eat, Pray, and Love. Natalie is the winner of four James Beard Foundation Journalism Awards and has been featured in top publications around the globe, including The Globe and Mail, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, Wine Enthusiast, San Francisco Chronicle, and so many more, not to mention a slew of television programs. So join us on August 19th for a must-listen-to interview with Natalie McLean. Back with Grape Encounters Radio and a great opportunity for us today to talk about a place really that I think is, I'm not going to say that it's not on anybody's radar, it's just not really on American radar that much, and we're talking about London. I got to know a sommelier uh, early this year, he's Valerio Cassani, and in talking to him, I just really enjoyed his perspective on food and wine. He was visiting Italy, but is now back in London and has a broad range of experience there, really understands the hospitality business and is very competent and highly certified in the wine end of things. Valerio, talk to me about the wine scene in London, because I know, first of all, that the British are making a lot more wine than ever before. What are they drinking there? And are they drinking any American or California wines? Yes, of course, but the thing is that London being, again, speaking about the, the fact that there is a very international city, you can find everything you like. I found a wonderful wine from my area that I couldn't find when I was in my village. But here in London, I found them like it could have been an Emilio Pepe or a Valentini, but also a wonderful Marina Svetic from the village Emma Winyard. And these are wine that for me is easier to find in London, Mark. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. So what about American wines and particularly California wines? Do you see much of that there? I do see them, obviously. We do have the fine wine from California. We do have the nice, bold Pinot Noir, the, the wonderful Oki Chardonnay. We don't have the basic one from that area. But yes, at the moment, the American wine, the North American wines are going very well, especially the California. It's one of the biggest producers at the moment. So what are they drinking from California? Is it, I'm going to guess that they drink more Cabernet Sauvignon than anything else. Yes. And... Yes, and obviously some, as I said, some very bold and structured Pinot Noir. Okay, now what about wines that are being produced in the UK? There was a time, I think back 20 years ago, nobody was ever talking about British wines. And now, especially in the sparkling wine category, those wines are showing up more and more. What's it look like as far as the British wine scene is concerned? Is it catching fire now? 
It wasn't a very big industry at one time, right? Can you just give us an overall perspective on where it was, say, 20 years ago, where it is now and where it's going? What I think is that, yes, 20 years ago, they were starting to produce. So especially at the beginning, you need to experiment. You need to let the wine grow. Obviously, they started with the sparkling wine that they are a bit more easy to make. Now they are moving. I've, I've heard about some Pinot Grigio, some Pinot Noir, but these are the, also the main grape they are producing at the moment. And the difference between 20 years ago and now is also the climate. The climate in uh, UK is getting a bit more warmer and this helped the wine to grow. This helped the wine to develop. It's really this amazing. Is- it's amazing when you say that because it's a story that I keep hearing over and over again, especially in Europe, that there are places that you would never have even dreamed that they would be producing wine. And now they are. And I'm talking about, for instance, the Scandinavian countries where it's warming up enough. They made wine there, but it's really changing. And I think they're able to make more. I didn't really think about England in that context, but yes, I can see where that would make a big difference. How big of a topic is climate change among sommeliers and foodies and wine people in Europe? Is it something that's talked about a lot or is it being played down? I'd say the biggest concern of the people that are more into it are the producer. Because in a 20, 25 years time, you can see your vine go completely in another direction. You know, in California, we're seeing a lot of the especially quality producers that are moving their vineyards to higher ground. And it's not something necessarily that the consumer is even aware of. But I can see, yes, from a a producer's standpoint, it's a scary thing when you can no longer produce the kind of fruit that you were producing 10 years ago. Things are moving fast. Yes, it's what is what is happening, obviously. And it also reduced the production. Yeah. So for example, it's a concerning and in Bordeaux area because it might reduce the production of the wine. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens this year. The strange weather that has been occurring in, say, California is really occurring all over the world. And so many places got way more rain in the early part of the year than they would normally get. And now we have these absolutely unbearable heat waves that are covering most of the globe. I mean, I don't think, honestly, that I can ever remember a year like this where the heat wave encompassed almost every square foot of the populated world. It's astonishing. What are people saying about that in the UK? Because you had heat waves there as well, right? Yes, we did have. And they are starting to adapt because now they are few years that this thing is happening, so they are starting to adapt. But again, it's not something that is easy to deal with. Yeah. Because as you know, the heat wave brings fire, problems, massive rain, and everything brings problems to the population, to the agriculture, and everything is affected from this. So yes, okay, so- in the UK, we are trying to adapt. Obviously, on the south of the UK, they are a bit more happy because the hospitality people, the season is getting bigger. In a city, it brings problems because the city, they are not yet able to withhold with this issue. Think just to move on the underground with this wave is very well, dangerous. What does tourism look like this year in London? Of course, you're from Italy. 
there have been huge problems in Italy with just way too many tourists. And then on top of that, there was an overabundance of tourism. And just when it looked like you couldn't possibly handle any more, the heat wave decided to drop by. And there were places like Venice, you know, many places, I should say, in Italy, they were just shutting down. And so you've got way more visitors than you would normally have. And they can't go to a lot of the places because it's too dangerous, because it's too hot. Similar situation in London or not? Obviously, uh, again, as I was saying, in the tube, you have to bring water with you. There are reminders to bring water with you. If you don't feel well, ask. It's what they try to let the people understand to help each other as well and to be prepared. Let's go back to wine for a second. Tell me what the British wine drinkers are drinking. What's hot right now? Is there anything that is starting to really grow in popularity? And then finally, what about those orange wines? So the common British will always go for a whispering angel or a pinot blush. And they do love Sauvignon and Chardonnay. I don't even know what whispering angel is. I'm sorry. It's a wonderful rosé from Provence. And that's what they do. I think they produce Whispering Angel only for the London market. I was going to say because it's not a wine I'm familiar with. So it's a rosé from Provence. I'm guessing that a lot of Provence wines find their way to the British market. Yes? Exactly. They they do love the rosé. They do love the Provencal rosé. In Italy, we have some Cerasuolo, a bit more deep. They go for the pale that they can find. Okay. We're going to come back in just a second. We are talking to Valerio Cassani. Sommelier in the amazing London food world, where I think no matter what you want to eat, you can find it there. And that includes worms and crickets. I won't be having any of those very soon. We'll be back right after this. Did you know that there are approximately 600 grapes in every glass of wine and about 3,000 in every bottle? And remember that breakfast cereal commercial that claimed there were two scoops of raisins in every package of their Bran Flakes product? It's a good thing most people don't drink wine for breakfast because the potential to have more than your fair daily share of grapes is definitely there. Thank goodness farmers grow more grapes than any other fruit. Aren't grapes groovy? family gathering, my brother Steve and I each bring several bottles of wines and try to one-up each other. I bring wines from all over. Steve only brings wines from California's Mendocino wine country, where he's lived for decades. And even though there are hundreds of great wineries there he can choose from, he mostly brings wines from the Graziano family of wines. Now you'd think you'd see a lot of duplicates from past gatherings since most producers only make 6 to 12 wines, but Graziano has 5 brands that make literally dozens, upwards of 30 mostly Italian varietals, and all rock stars. Made by the real rock star, Greg Graziano. You can hear my recent interview with Greg at GrapeEncounters.com, and you can find Graziano wines all over America, or buy them online at GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. I've never confessed how much I love Graziano wines to my brother, and uh, let's keep it that way. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. 
When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, walnuts and wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. For the past year and a half, I've been surrounded by awesome Italian wines. But if you want to experience Italy's finest, you don't even have to leave your neighborhood. Thanks to Total Wine & More. Just arriving straight from Tuscany, they've got the new St. Giorgio wines from the remarkable Castellani family. For 120 years, the Castellanis have been dedicated to the craft of traditional Italian winemaking, producing top quality wines at incredible values like the Vino Nobile with a 96-point rating. It does not disappoint. And with bottles starting at just $9.99 and more varietals with near-perfect scores, we can all enjoy Italy's best for much less. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. And drink responsibly. Be 21. And we're back with Grape Encounters Radio. You know, the one person who is not back, however, is a friend that I made here in Italy, except that he lives in London and he comes here infrequently. And he's just one of the most interesting guys in the food and wine business that I've met. He's Valerio Cassani, and his specialty really, if you look at his background, seems to be more in Japanese food than anything else. And we were talking, Valerio, about the Asian food scene in London. It's a big deal, is it not? There's Chinese, there's, of course, Japanese, but also you've got Thai is Thai a big thing there? Yes, it does appeal to all the palate. And it goes from, as in my case, from the fine dining, but throughout all the range. You have casual Japanese fusion, you have casual Asian, you have trap. You can find in the supermarket at the moment, there's a little counter with a chef making everything for you. So yes, nowadays, the Asian food, Japanese, everything related to sushi, everything related to rice, let's say, is a very big thing. Okay, now I want to talk about a particular culture food that is one of my absolute favorites. And they say that London is the number one place on the planet if you want Indian food. Am I right? Obviously, there is a really nice and big community of people that come from that part of the world, India, Pakistan, Thailand, and yes, we there are few Michelin star Indian restaurants. In wow. Yeah. Yes. Really? So let's talk about pairing wine with those spicier foods. 
Some of the Middle Eastern foods can be very spicy. Indian food can be very spicy. Thai food can uh, make your mouth explode depending upon what you order. What is the challenge as a sommelier when it comes to pairing those ultra spicy foods? As we said, for the palate, when you're going to suggest a wine, when you're going to bring a wine to a table to one of your guests, obviously you will have to keep in mind that the palate, it might be a bit overwhelmed already. So the guests may lose the, the flavor. So I always try to go for bubbles. Okay. And I can definitely see that. What about something a little sweeter? Yes. But again, it will be felt watery taste, I have to say. Unless you don't go for a sweet wine, speaking about Tokai, Vinsanto, or these kind of things. Yeah, okay. maybe a Sauvignon Blanc with those wonderful ripe exotic fruit. I'm yeah, definitely with you on bubbles. And the thing that I like about bubbles with spicy food is, for me, it resets my palate. There's a whole cleansing thing that goes on. It cools down my mouth very quickly and it doesn't eliminate those fantastic flavors that are lingering long after that bite. So that's just my preference as well. But I will say I've been known to drink a beer too. <laughs> so I'm not even a beer drinker. What is your favorite thing to experience food-wise in London? If I came there and spent three or four days with you, let's not talk about fancy restaurants. Let's talk about food fare that is distinctly London or is a thing there that you don't want to miss. The thing is that you cannot go for just one thing. So I will. That's why I said three or four days. Valerio, I'm going to be there for three or four yeah, no, days. No, no, no. I will bring you, first of all, to Borough Market. Okay. Where you have massive number of stands of different foods, more of them British related, obviously. And that would be for the first day. We, we will also go through a few of the pubs and the wine shop that are around there. After that, there's a new something that was born a few years ago, when it was five years ago. One of them is Valerio Mazzei, the owner, that is one of the most well-known Italian chef in London. This is Mercato Metropolitano, where again, you can find a multitude of food. Maybe I can go for something Italian. You can go for something Japanese and we can be sitting on the same table. So now London is this, especially if you want something a bit more affordable, if you want something a bit more quick and fast. You have this agglomerate of uh, little restaurants in a big space. You can find whatever you like. Street food is very big. Yeah, but it's a street food in a place. There are still the street food where you go and find your little Volkswagen truck that makes food. These are still, <laughs> okay. but they start to open big spaces and bring all of them together. Okay. Was- so the last time I was in London, I stayed for a few days in uh, Piccadilly and yeah. there was something that kind of shocked me actually. I was standing on a street corner just looking around, and from the vantage point that I was at, I saw not one, not two, not three, not four, but five Starbucks coffee. Yes. Starbucks owns London, (laughs) I think, right? Yes, but I did my first experience when I moved in London, not having good English, it was to start in one of these big coffee shops. Okay. Thing is, they they don't care if they make money. They have to be there, the present. If there's a cafe, Fenero, there have to be two Starbucks. If there is one Burger King, there needs to be two McDonald's. I was just actually shocked by it. But on the other hand, I am actually a Starbucks 
Bucks fan, and I upset some wine people and foodie people by saying that, but you have to think about it, put it in perspective. If you go back 20 years, maybe it's longer than that, there was no such thing as Starbucks, and the only coffee that Americans consumed was out of the can. And no matter what you think about Starbucks, I think the quality of the coffee is decent, but look what it did to elevate the coffee culture in America. The difference is day and night, and it opened up the doors for people like you, for people like me to open up coffee houses and do an even better job. So it's kind of in a way, Valerio, like entry-level wines and how they bring new wine drinkers into the fold. So there's definitely something good about it. I did work for a coffee shop. And from a business point of view, it's one of the best things and something that also has been very good for all the people like me. It was a perfect starting point. Well, that's a good point, too. Look at the jobs it created. A so tremendous was- number of jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Well, listen, we have to say goodbye, Valerio. Really been nice talking to you. And you know I'm coming to London soon. And when I do that, we're going to drag some microphones around, too, and talk about the food and culture there from a much more close-up perspective. But thanks very much for being with me. I enjoyed having you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That is going to do it for Grape Encounters today. We will see you back here next week.